Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode. Hello to our listeners out there, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chantel Wilkinson, for those just tuning into the show, and I am the campaign manager of Opportunity Starts at Home. Thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode. Last year, we released an article in collaboration with the Legal Action Center on how housing impacts harm reduction, the criminal legal system, and healthcare. The article will be linked in the description of this podcast, so please, if you have not done so already, go ahead and check it out. Today, we are joined by Victoria Palacio Carr from the Legal Action Center. Victoria, welcome to the podcast, and please tell us a bit about yourself. Why do you do this work? Hi, Chantel. Thank you so much for having me on your platform today. I'm so uh, excited to be here. So like you said, my name is Victoria Palacio Carr. I'm the Deputy Director of State Strategy at the Legal Action Center. Just a little bit of background about myself. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. However, I currently live in North Carolina, but my upbringing is truly what brings me to this work. Growing up in South Los Angeles, many of the inequities in the city were highly visible. And so my entire childhood, I was constantly thinking about what were causing the social challenges that I was seeing every day and what resources my community and communities like mine needed in order to feel safer and to be healthier. And so really, I think being in this frame of mind is what led me to a major in sociology. So I ended up going to Cal State Long Beach and I majored in sociology. And while I was there, I ended up taking a course on politics and policy in Los Angeles. And that course was my first introduction to the concept of affordable housing. In that course, I learned about different affordable housing types and just really how having safe and quality housing is essential to people's lives. And so I would say that that course really impacted the trajectory of my life and made me a lifelong housing advocate. After that course, I ended up taking a couple of jobs that had connections to affordable housing in one way or another. And then in 2015, I moved to the DC area and started interning for a local nonprofit there called MANA. 
Uh, MANA is an awesome organization and they build housing for affordable home ownership. And with them, I advocated for affordable housing programs and for the whole continuum of affordable housing. And even once my career began to pivot and I started working for national organizations that focus on different issue areas, that foundation and passion for affordable housing remained within me. And I was, uh, I ensured that no matter what type of work I was doing, that I uplifted the importance of affordable housing because it intersected with every issue area that I touched. Victoria, I just learned something about you, which is really great for some background. I've known Victoria a little bit for a while now, just working on the campaign. Legal Action Center has just been a very a longstanding partner with us. Um, but I learned something about you that also really connects to me too, which um, just being raised in a, in a major city, I was, I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and just seeing the same things and also being somebody who's experienced affordable housing, knows what it's like to just be someone who... I saw my mom just trying to make sure that we kept the roof over our heads and that kind of thing. Also, how that connected to the work that I ended up doing for me, it was a it was a campaign I was working on in um, upstate New York, where it's this called this Breathing Lights campaign, and it brought together all these different folks. Started with some artists and their idea around this art installation to bring some awareness around um, the vacant housing in upstate New York. And it just ended up being a much bigger project where policymakers were involved and community leaders were involved, community organizations, land trusts, just nonprofits, all these things, um, all these folks kind of came together around this project and which with all of those partners coming together, it's, it's not too shocking to myself that I ended up being on a campaign that's built on this multi-sector layered way of looking at housing because housing just impacts so much. And I remember just so much of that project, listening to people's stories and them just sharing just how, you know, we lost our home here and this is why we moved and this was how it impacted our health. And this is, you know, my kids' education. This is how it impacted that. And this is how it's impacted our community to have all these vacant buildings here with no one living in there and they're deteriorating and there's no one here to take care of it. And so very much connected to this issue in not only a professional way, but a very deeply personal way as well. And so I just thank you so much for sharing that. And I just love that I, I learned something about you today. So that's wonderful. And with that, I do want you to tell us a little bit about the Legal Action Center. Like what's the work? Uh, what's the mission? Yes. So first of all, I appreciate you sharing that background about yourself. It sounds like you were a part of a very impactful campaign. I would love to learn more about it, but I guess it's no surprise that you ended up working on an impactful campaign. So that's awesome. And I see how it all came full circle really for both of us. But about the Legal Action Center. So the Legal Action Center is a national nonprofit. We're based in New York. And we use legal and policy strategies to fight against the discrimination that people face due to arrest and conviction records, due to histories of substance use, having a mental health condition, or having HIV or AIDS. And so I started working for the Legal Action Center in 2018, and I was brought on to work on a campaign that was new at the time. It's called the No Health Equals No Justice Campaign. And the premise of this campaign is that people should not be incarcerated for having a substance use disorder or a mental health condition, because those are health conditions. And so in addition to believing that people shouldn't be criminalized for these things, we also believe that there's no justice 
if people don't have access to health care. So our work is really at the intersection of criminal legal system reform and health care. In addition to that, the campaign really embodies the work that Legal Action Center has been doing for the past 50 years. Uh, yes, we are 50 years old. We turned 50 years old this year, which I'm excited about. So I have to shout us out for that. But the campaign really embodies Legal Action Center's work while also embracing a deeper racial analysis of the work and incorporating community partners. So our partners are nonprofit leaders in their cities, and we really lean on them to guide our work. They work primarily with justice-involved populations. And I know that this conversation isn't specifically about the No Health Equals No Justice campaign, although the campaign is the umbrella under which the Black Harm Reduction Network falls. But I wanna uplift this campaign because that's really where I've gotten uh, exposure to issues relating to justice-involved populations. And what I wanna say is that our partners are very vocal about the challenges that they experience when trying to get their clients and the communities that they serve access to housing. Some of our partners have had such a difficult time trying to house their clients that they've had to become housing developers themselves. So in addition to everything they're doing, like connecting their clients to healthcare and to food and to clothing, now they're actually having to build housing as well because discrimination is preventing their clients from accessing housing. And as you know, the housing stock is just far too limited. Yes. Congratulations to you all <laughs> in terms of the 50 years of work that you've been doing. Sometimes I get so conflicted with like the, the long standing work because it feels like this shouldn't be long standing work. Someone should be doing something about this now. But um, just applause for that because it's it's hard work and we know just how much it takes to really think about the ways in which these issues compound in and of itself and trying to keep up with the years and how things change and new strategies to try to get resources to people, um, trying to make sure that we're listening intently to what's happening on the ground, as well as how we implement programs and how policies are written to make sure these things are more streamlined and easier for, for people to get the resources that they need. And just as you've communicated with those challenges, it also has this other effect where others have to step up in ways that maybe they didn't think that they would have to before. Just it's, it's almost out of just necessity because there's such a need for the policies and programs to really work in an effective way to really help people again, get the resources they need. And we'll dig so much more into that. And especially when we were speaking around the article. So I do want to table that just for a second, um, just to talk a little bit about why um, this group has been so engaged with the campaign for the years that you have. We don't have 50 years like the Legal Action Center does, but we do have about five years <laughs> in the campaign building this multi-sector coalition of partners that are really, you know, engaged when it comes to housing policy and really trying to change this narrative about why housing is just so foundational to everything that we care about. And just like, it's it's almost something that, you know, coming into this campaign, I was just like, it feels like such a common sense thing to say that where you live also impacts where you get food. It impacts the just the policies around you, quite frankly, in all these ways, the healthcare, the education, the criminal justice system, all these things are impacted by where you live. 
unfortunately in many ways so because there's such a disparity and such inequities across the spectrum across the nation in so many different ways that this shows up across the country um but just to talk a little bit about why you know as this 50 year standing organization doing such great work in so many different areas um why it was so important or why um you felt the need uh, to really be a part of this campaign highly engaged for so many years um and just tell us a little bit about that like why why did you join opportunity starts at home why has the legal action center been such a long standing partner with us for how many years the five years that we've been been on this campaign and i don't remember exactly when the legal action center joined us but i know it was very early on it may have been just pretty much at the launch of the round table so if you can just give us a little bit of background on that Yes. So you're right, actually. I remember being at the launch and I don't know how I got the invite to you all's first meeting, but I'm so happy that I did. And so I remember seeing you and Mike and talking about your passions and about the campaign and just about the intersectional approach that you guys take to the work, because you recognize that really every social issue that we fight for intersects with housing. And that's something that I've understood as well. And so after you all's first meeting, I of course, I ran back to my team and told them like, we need to be a part of this campaign. And we have been ever since. You all are five years old. The No Health Equals No Justice campaign has been operating for five years. And since I started with our campaign, we've been a member of your campaign. And so I'm actually a little sad that it took us so long to write something together, but I hope this is the first of many things that we do in partnership because you all's work has influenced ours. And I hope that in at least a small way, our work is influencing yours as well. Oh, absolutely. And not in small ways, um, huge ways. I think that every single time we're, we're connected with a partner that can speak about housing in their angle, any way in which is done too, like the article is something that's public facing and anybody can access that article and read it. We have, I mean, a listserv of over 5,000 people who kind of get informed about what we're doing all the time. So just having that as something that people can use and advocates can use themselves, as well as for us to speak about a lot of the policies that we want to push forward. So absolutely, not not in a small way at all, in huge ways. It's such a big part of, of the campaign's work to have those diverse perspectives and voices to really speak about housing. Um, so it's, 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 it's just extraordinary for us and tremendous for us to even see how many partners we've been able to build over the years and how many partners are really engaged with the work. And again, the Legal Action Center from the very beginning, you guys have been highly engaged, always coming to meetings, always um, coming to events, always promoting anything that we have going on, sharing stuff that we have going on. So um, inviting us to speak to things. So those things are, are just incredibly, incredibly important to the work that we do. And we just thank you so much for it. And I want to, I want to go into the article because we've been talking about it for a while and I'm sure folks are like, what is going on? Where's, what is this article? Let's talk about that. So definitely want to jump into this article that we recently collaborated on. And it really, it's, it's about the connection between housing, harm reduction, the legal system, um, the criminal legal system and health. And I wanted to ask you just a few questions about the article, just to have us deepen, like just dig a little deeper into what was written in that article. So you did share 
during a virtual conference hosted by the Black Reduction Network that registrants revealed that housing was one of the top issues they cared about in the pre-survey of that event. So how is the Black Harm Reduction Network involved in the Legal Action Center's work? And I know that you talked a bit about that. And how has this information shaped the priorities of the Black Harm Reduction Network? So thank you for that question. That is a full question, and I'm going to give a fuller answer, so please bear with me. I really want to start by explaining what harm reduction is, just for those who may not be as familiar with it. So when I'm using the term harm reduction, because I know it's starting to be used in different spaces a little bit now, but when I'm using the term, what I'm referring to is reducing the harms that people face due to using substances. And those harms can be caused by the use of the drug itself. So if that's like a tainted drug supply or not having safe supplies when using the drugs, but the harm can also be caused by society. And oftentimes it is caused by society in terms of people being criminalized or over-criminalized. And also people who use substances experience certain types of discrimination, uh, specifically housing discrimination, especially if they've been involved with the criminal legal system, that's going to increase the likelihood that they uh, are going to experience housing discrimination due to that substance use. So that's a little bit about harm reduction. Uh, now I would like to share a little bit about LAC's history in the work. So harm reduction was one of the Legal Action Center's strategies to address HIV back in the day long before I started LIC. Um, and in addition to that, we were also doing policy work on clean syringe access. Also, there was a time where a lot of syringe service programs had to be underground and LAC staff were helping to support them during that time. And we've also worked and still in some capacity work to ensure that people who are in the criminal legal system have access to substance use treatment while they're there. This history is really what's brought the Black Harm Reduction Network to the Legal Action Center. So the spirit of the Black Harm Reduction Network has existed for some time now. Black people would always meet, whether that was formally or informally, at harm reduction conferences that were facilitated by the National Harm Reduction Coalition and the Drug Policy Alliance. And so, Every year, those organizations were having these conferences and Black people were meeting, and eventually they got to a point where they felt, you know, we need to have our own organization. It's been it's about three years or so since the Drug Policy Alliance, the National Harm Reduction Coalition, and the Legal Action Center decided to partner in building out the, the network. And now we have over 60 members who regularly engage with us in bi-monthly meetings and convenings that we host. And at this point, the base of this work is being incubated and convened by the Legal Action Center. And so our work, at least as how the Legal Action Center describes it, we view um, Black harm reduction not just only as it pertains to substance use, but we have to look at the harms that people face, that Black people face simply from being Black. So when we talk about 
Black harm reduction, yes, what brings our folks together is because of their work that they're doing around substance use. But they're also Black people who recognize that even if all drugs were legalized and uh, there was no criminalization and all the drugs were safe to use, there's still harms I'm going to face solely from being Black. And so that history or that dynamic is really what makes sense as to why the Black Harm Reduction Network would view housing as a top concern. Because unfortunately, housing is an example of one of those issues where Black people are disproportionately affected. And that's due to uh, discrimination in housing connected to redlining and our ability to gain to gain wealth. And even not so uh, distant history, but even currently, you hear things about how our communities are undervalued. And so it really makes sense that organizations that we work with will feel a need to address housing concerns because they're going to be even more impacted because of their race. Additionally, uh, the Black Harm Reduction Network, it's certainly influencing the way the Legal Action Center does our work because our article that we put out uh, was released a few months ago, but our work is continuing to evolve. And so since our piece was released, our partners are now saying, yes, I might have come into your network because of my experience with the criminal legal system, or I might have come into your network because of my passion for healthcare, but I'm a harm reductionist too. And so in the article, I really kind of made a distinction between harm reductionists and criminal legal system advocates and healthcare advocates. But if I could go back, I think I would put a little footnote uh, explaining that there's so much overlap that oftentimes all these advocates are one in the same. And as you know now, these advocates are also housing advocates too. Yes. And I mean, basically where you ended there is the message that the campaign has had for for its inception, which is that so many of these issues just kind of spill over into each other. And so, you know, you you have a conversation with one person and you'll see how, you know, just like, just, just the way in which everything just kind of intersects and the way that we're supposed to, because there's just been this bottom line kind of conversation in the campaign for years about the way that we look at these issues that not only not only in ways that we see each sector as like siloed and that has been one of the issues with getting partners in the campaign is that we have these sectors that are siloed so there's like the healthcare sector there's the education sector there's org- organizations and groups working within these sectors um and then every sector is not a monolith. So you could be talking to one healthcare group, but they can, can have a completely different perspective within the field of healthcare or education the same way. Some groups are a little bit more homogenous in terms of like the ways in which they think and the kinds of information that comes out are a little bit more connected throughout the sector itself. But some sectors are also varying in perspectives and opinions and ways in which they go about policy work and advocacy if they even do. And so, so much of that has an impact on kind of the ways that we're able to build those partnerships as well. But just as you mentioned, when you do have conversations with folks, when you are hearing stories, when you are looking at the ways that people do work, there is this need for us to step outside of the sectors that we are in to collaborate with folks outside of these sectors because it makes policy better. I know like even working on certain issues, 
one thing that always comes up is just how much the policy and the program can sometimes like almost like uh, be at odds with each other and they make certain things difficult. But that is even so much so much more of the important part too of just like how do we draft language and make sure that these programs are done in a way that really you know do the things that we want these programs to do like how come there's a discrepancy there and so much of that has to go with like the ways that we're having these conversations that they can't just be like within themselves or within the groups that make us feel the most comfortable because it's the issue that we've been working on. We have to be able to listen and know what it is that other folks are doing so that we can do these policies better. And so when it comes to housing policy, it's just like, it's, it's, a, it's one of those things that, you know, it blows my mind because housing is one of those top issues. It's an issue because it's the top expense for so many families. And when you're hearing that families are literally spelling, spending more than half of their income on rent, it's just like, how are you able to buy medicine when your kid is sick or when you are sick? What if you have an emergency and you have to spend thousands of dollars in the healthcare system and okay, there goes your rent money. What if there's a broken down car that you, again, could not have anticipated? You're just trying to get to work. What if there's hours cut at work? And all these things are just, they go into so many other issues. And the other thing that you spoke about there that is just really important and it's just something that I think that, again, the conversation continues to evolve in it, but it's something that I really hope that we can really understand, especially when we're talking about so many of these intersections, is that racial equity and how this shows up for black and brown communities, it's almost like you have to look at the equity within your sector itself. So in housing, there are inequities for black and brown folks and accessing the housing that are unique and different from just overall just folks not being able to get housing like there's there's a definitely different kind of problem there and you just kind of explained that with like yeah if everything else was to be good and accessible there's still this discrimination aspect that needs to also be addressed how are we seeing that issue compound when we see it in in play with with another sector in in um in conjunction with another sector in people's stories and people's lives and the way that they're able to access the resources that they need and, I, and you talked just so much about that and I wanted to lift that up because sometimes I think that we we also talk about like equity in a way that's just like well health equity and uh, we need a criminal justice system that's equitable and a housing system that's equitable. But we also have to think about when we are thinking about these intersections, there's also the ways that those inequities compound because of the nature of how we live our lives, which is a more intersectional way than it is a siloed way. So I just thank you so much for, for bringing that up and lifting that up. And I do want to go to another question. And you talked about this a little bit, so I don't know if um, if you had more to speak of of this issue or like if uh, another way that you may want to um, target the question at all. Um, but it's in this question, inequity, when we're talking about the current state of affordable housing and how it impacts justice-involved individuals acutely impacting Black and brown communities, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Is there anything else um, more that we could also share and uplift in that conversation? Yes. So as you know, the affordable housing crisis affects so many folks in this country. Even me being someone who's not explicitly directly impacted in that way, I've experienced struggling to find housing that I can afford. So just on a personal level, 
the issue connects with me. But on top of that, you have to think about people who might have to go through a background check in order to access housing. And if they're just as involved, then they might be denied housing due to that arrest, arrest and conviction record. And this disproportionately hurts Black and Latino communities. Like I mentioned before, this disproportionately impacts us because we're disproportionately criminalized for all things. Our communities are disproportionately policed. So if there's more police in your community surveilling you all the time, even if you're just doing normal human activities, that's going to increase the likelihood that you're going to get wrapped up in the criminal legal system, which is going to increase likelihood that you're going to struggle to access housing. And then we have to look at it as a bigger picture. And it's kind of to what you just spoke about. When these we don't live in, we don't have siloed lives, like you said. And also, we don't have a siloed existence. So that means it's not just about what my brother over here is experiencing. If he can't get housing, and on top of that, because his family is Black or Latino, they're struggling to access housing due to economic conditions that are systemic. Then when they get released from incarceration, their family might not have anywhere to house them their house may not be big enough there's so many issues and so it's not just about how these policies impact the individual it's about how they impact their families how it impacts the communities and what that looks like in terms of resources overall thank you so much for fleshing that out it's it's definitely it's definitely an issue where again you said it and in my mind i was just thinking Again, the community that you live in, if it's over police, you have more, you just, there's that surveillance, the ways in which we treat each other, you know, under that kind of, under that kind of living situation, you could just, it doesn't take that stretch of an imagination to know that like there's what, what could come out of, of that. And just the ways in which people struggle when they're coming out of, of this legal system to find housing, to try to get their lives back on track, to try to rebuild. Um, some of it is just so unfair when you're thinking about um, someone does, they, they're in the this system, they come out and they're just like, okay, I, I'm trying to just get back on track. Let me try to get the get settled, get on the straight and narrow, do this, like, like let me, let me just get this, this stable place. Let me get stabilized a place in my life now coming out of the system. Um, and not being able to find housing and then you're not able to find housing. So that's your number one stability right there. Like just having a roof over your head to build a routine every day to make sure that you have somewhere to, to rest and eat and have somewhere to build community with people who can talk to you, who can foster, you know, just positive outcomes in your life. Even those things that are so basic to the way that we live, we just, sometimes we just almost don't even think of how important that is for somebody to just have a stability and regain um, some type of just level of foundation in their lives. When you don't have housing, it just throws so much stuff just out there. You don't, you don't have a place to, 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 to rest. Imagine, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to be out there to, to look for opportunities, to think about going anywhere up if you have nowhere that's solid ground. Like, how do you think about even progression in your life when you when there's no solid ground, there's no foundation? And that's why we speak so much about housing being such a foundation to just everything that we do, because without it, everything else would just go, it's just, 
it's just unstable. There's just, how do you think about anything else when you, when you don't have a roof over your head, when you don't have shelter, um, when you don't have a place to just have a warm, safe existence? What, what does that look like? And even if you do have that, how does that look like in neighborhoods that, you know, are underfunded, where there's not a lot of resources available to you, um, that where there's not good healthcare available to you when you're surveillance all the time and you don't, you don't know how to really function in a place there where that is the reality of the, the place that you live or you learn to live with it, which is just something that is terribly done to to in a very acute group of people and because of discrimination. So it's, it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, I know a lot of people have been bringing it up just because of what has happened in the most recent years, but it's, it's been there. It's almost like embedded and it just has to be uprooted and, and, and taken out so that people can really have and live healthy lives that we're trying to promote. So, um, it's, it's just one of those things that I always try to pull out when, when I'm having conversations with people, because it's just one of those things that I feel like you just got to keep hammering on until, um, we know that it's something that we need to take real action in and we have to make sure that the policies that we're talking about too really do address that as well. And so just thank you so much for, for breaking that down, um, especially in the ways that people see it in connection with the criminal legal system, how that really plays a huge role in the way that people are able to just come back and really live these healthy lives and be able to rebuild and reconnect um, into their communities as well. And so I just really thank you for that. And I wanted to go to the solutions because we've been talking a bit about just what these, what do these policies look like? So we're talking a lot about policy. We know that there's an issue. We know that there are problems that we're seeing across the nation. And so what do we do to solve it? What is, what is the solutions that, that, that are out there? And through the campaign, you know, we are, we are a broad coalition. We are a big campaign. We have ambitious goals. Um, and because we have such a broad base of supporters and advocates, um, the policy agenda that we've fleshed out is a very broad one. So we talk all the time about the need to um, address uh, bridging that gap between rents and incomes for individuals, that folks should have access to a voucher if they need it, that folks should have access to a renter's tax credit if that's available, whatever it is um, that's needed for people to bridge that gap between that rent and income so that they're able to afford certain places um, or are able to go into certain neighborhoods and also um, and find housing there as well. There shouldn't be a cap in where people are able to live. They should be able to have a free choice in where they live and it should be accessible to them. And then we also talk a lot about uh, the places in the nation where there really isn't affordable housing, where we see a lot of vacancies, that there should be a place where folks can find housing and housing can be rebuilt or built in those places um, so that people can access housing. And so for us, we've been big advocates about the National Housing Trust Fund because it's dedicated and targeted to those at the lower income scale. And so we know that when we really target the resources to those most in need it does have an impact on the households at that higher end of the spectrum like because we're really addressing those that are vulnerable in this sense because they they are experiencing housing instability in a way that's just 
crushing their their lives and their existence. So uh, we talk about where there are places where there are a ton of vacancies that there should be affordable housing built and available to those that need it. Uh, we also talk a lot about preserving the units that are already there. So we're always on the fence when it comes to that because there's always a need for a new development. So we're seeing the housing landscape literally transform in, in so, so much in such recent years, which like we have Airbnb is coming up and like certain developments coming in and buying up a lot of, of property and re redeveloping these properties and that raising the rents in a lot of areas and stuff like that. And so um, where there is affordable housing, we do speak a lot about preserving that 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 supply of affordable housing for folks as well. And then we have this last bucket that we speak of, which is really about prevention for us, for folks that, again, if you are driving from work and you get a broken down car, um, you shouldn't have to lose your home. Like it's, it's if you, if, if you need an emergency happens, a medical emergency happens and you need assistance, you need help. You, sh you shouldn't also be tied down after, you know, working through trying to get the healthcare that you need to also come back and know like, oh, I have this big, huge bill now because of this medical emergency and I can't pay for my rent. Um, sometimes it is something like losing a job or losing hours at work. Um, and we've seen studies that show that people get evicted for, for amounts that are way less than what their rent is. You know, sometimes it's just hundreds of dollars, but when you're in an unstable situation, even that hundred dollar that you could have put towards your rent could really be something that spirals into homelessness and eviction for so many people. Which is just such a sad thing to think that people are literally losing housing because they couldn't they couldn't come up with an extra whatever it is, two hundred, three hundred dollars to cover the rent. You know, it's just it's it it shouldn't be this way for so many households across the nation. And so um although our policy buckets are very broad, they really speak to like the need to just have more resources for people, that we're creating those resources for people. And we're also making sure that we're keeping in mind that people have emergencies, that there's unexpected things that people have that come up and they shouldn't have to spiral into this prolonged need of assistance because something comes up in their lives. We should be able to give them you know, something. We need to give them the resource to um, really stabilize themselves and really be able to get back on their feet uh, when things get rough. Because when you're, especially if you're in that lower end of the income scale, just anything can really throw off, you know, a situation. Um, and so those are the things that we advocate through the campaign. That's the way that we see um, the broad kind of like need um, that folks that folks have um, when it comes to housing and how we can advocate for them. And there's plenty of other, you know, specific housing policy as well. But through the campaign, we really do keep it at like a broad level to really bring in all the advocates too, because we do understand that when it comes to advocacy and talking about these different sectors, that there's so many fires that need to be put out in all these different sectors too. So we try to make sure that we keep it broad enough and ambitious and, um, and, and, um, and doable, quite frankly, enough for folks that it's something that we can all understand that we need, understand needs to get done, and we can all kind of push forth in that way um, when it comes to the the big um, kind of landscaping policies and solutions that we talk about through the campaign. So they're big goals, but they're goals that are definitely achievable. They're things that um, 
definitely need to also get done because they're absolutely needed. Um, and so talking about the policy solutions, the ones that we do talk about in the article, I guess I would ask you, what are some housing solutions that you also see come up and um, how do those solutions address kind of the outcomes that we're looking for as well? Yes. So first I want to say yes, 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 yes to everything you just said, because those solutions that you've outlined are also what we view as solutions as well. Thanks to being educated by the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign and the National Low Income Housing Coalition, we recognize that when we talk about the importance of housing for our populations, the first thing we need to say is there needs to be more affordable housing, period. So, yes, people who are disproportionately impacted by the justice system or those who are experiencing substance use, yes, they need housing, but in order to have that housing, housing needs to exist and be accessible. So that's really um, one of our key stances. But on top of that, we strongly believe in housing first. And the housing first model says that the first thing that people who are struggling with housing need or, or, or those who are unhoused, what they need is a home. So first put them in a house and without any prerequisites. So that means don't say that they have to be in treatment. Don't say that they need to have a case manager. Don't say any of the, that they have to have a job, any of these things. First get them in housing because statistics show that once they're in the housing, they're more likely to accept the supports when they're offered to them. So we're not saying just get housing and stay there and that's it, be happy. No, we believe that the supports will help people and that they need access to those supports. But they should be able to access housing first. Uh, research has showed us for decades now that the way to eliminate homelessness is to, is to put people in houses. And the fact that we're always spinning our wheels about how to address it is crazy because we know the solution is houses. And so that's, that's important to our folks as well. In addition, we believe in fair chance housing policies, which work to eliminate the discrimination that people face to accessing housing due to their records. We don't think that records should prevent folks from being able to access housing and when there's opportunities for ban the box housing initiatives, those should be supported. And then additionally, we, and this is based off of our experience with our partners, we believe that the government should provide more TA and funding to help formerly incarcerated people to develop housing themselves. And I say that because I mentioned before about our partners who are developing housing. And Whenever I get a chance, I like to uplift our partners. So specifically, that's Restore Her in Georgia, led by Pamela Wynn, and that's Lifeline to Success in Memphis, Tennessee, led by Vanessa Brown. They are our partners who are currently developing housing. And so the government, if they're not going to build the housing for us, they need to at least support those people who are working in communities to develop the housing. Thank you so much for those solutions. So I did want to double back a little 
on that question on solutions, are there some examples of housing solutions that increase access to housing for justice-involved populations? I know you shared a little bit and talked a little bit about it just now, but are there more examples or some things that kind of specifically target those that are, um, or really increase that access, I should say, for those um, that need housing um, in those justice-involved populations? Yes, housing first, but then also supportive housing is a key resource that's helpful to them. And so it's kind of also about identifying what does this person need and making sure that every type of housing on the housing continuum is accessible to all folks because everyone who's seeking safe quality housing has different needs. So making sure that housing on the continuum is at every level is uh, fully funded. And then also an additional solution that pertains specifically to justice involved folks is supporting family reunification initiatives. Sometimes people are released and they're released into cities or states where they don't even have family members because they have been relocated while they were incarcerated. So making sure that people are able to get to their family, that their family uh, is able, has resources to bring them into the home. Some some laws prohibit people from who have records from living in public housing, depending on what their conviction was. So really looking at those type of policies to make sure that they're equitable and safe for everyone who's involved. But being, people being able to reunify with their families is also a um, is a solution as well. I was our partner Voices for a Second Chance in DC. They were just telling us yesterday about how their organization is paying family members to house their loved ones who are being incarcerated, just because you know the loved one is struggling to get housing on their own. So those type of solutions if they are beneficial and found to be effective in in your locality should be uh, advocated and supported as well okay thank you so much um for that i definitely learned a lot by what you just said in terms of just the ways that these um solutions or the ways that we're talking about policies and the ways that we see the solutions um even though the campaign is so broad in the way that we look at these policies. I also think that this really is helpful for those who need to know too just kind of how the how the the policies that we're advocating for impacts certain populations. So we'll often talk about like how these things impact veterans or how they impact uh, you know, specifically black and brown communities. It definitely lends again to say why and really uplifts the need for these conversations on this multi-sector level, because it really also helps us understand how the policies that we're advocating for um, is unique to so many different experiences. So I just thank you so much for that. And I wanted to talk about language a bit. So language is constantly shifting, especially as we find better ways to capture um, and voice the inequities that we see. So for example, it's been very intentional uh, for us in the last few years to say justice-involved populations. I know that in the campaign, one of our partners, I'm not sure if it was you or if it was, we also work with uh, Just Leadership USA, but they, they also made the point to say like, 
this is the way that we talk about these these populations. This is the better language to use. This is the language that really captures what they they're experiencing. And these language, the the language that we use is just constantly changing. So I wanted to speak about that. Like, could you speak to the importance of being intentional about our language and how that influences advocacy in this space? Yes, being intentional about our language is very important, and it. I believe it probably was just USA that put that out. And it's important that we lean in and listen to people who are directly impacted in knowing what language we should and shouldn't use. Uh, because the way people define themselves can be different and we want to honor that. And so even at Legal Action Center, we've become very conscious and intentional about the fact of not using the term criminal justice system because our partners have said to us there's no justice in the system so instead we've shifted and now we're saying criminal legal system more often and so using language is very important because number one when you're advocating in front of policymakers you want policymakers to be able to see themselves if possible or their loved ones in the people who you're advocating for. And so if you're using language that's othering, it's going to be hard to do that, number one. And then number two, in the situation like using the term criminal legal system reform over criminal justice, it's important because we don't want to give any systems credits for doing things, for doing positive things that they aren't. And so if I'm saying criminal justice, criminal justice is not, then you might assume the system is just, but we know that it isn't at all. Um, there's more injustice in it oftentimes than justice. And so because of that, we want to be true and as accurate as possible in the language that we use. And for that example, that's why we use the, the term criminal legal system. Definitely. When we were working on the like racial equity working group that we have through the campaign, so much of language and the way that we communicate and the way that we describe and talk about these issues and the ways that we talk about policy, it has an impact. I mean, there was so much around, we need to change the way that we say this and we need to change the way that we say that because this really does not capture what it is that we're trying to describe very well, or it makes this situation seem more negative. Or like you said, it's just a way in which people are able to see themselves. There's a way that we can use language that like dehumanizes groups, communities, individuals, and where we're not aware that that is what we're doing, it has an impact on that other person that you're trying to also advocate and say like, hey, this person needs resources, but if we're not using language that also paints that person as a full human being, it really does, and in many cases, create like a negative um, impact around the things that we're trying to advocate for. So it's definitely something to take note of and through the campaign, everything that you said, we've definitely been told and try to also make sure that we're, we're also following the lead of our partners. And I just also want to uplift that as another reason why it's so important that we work with multi-sector groups too, is that you guys have really enhanced so much of our language with the conversations that you're having and saying like, oh, we can't use this term. No, this actually doesn't, doesn't work well. I mean, we had a group that told us that like, oh, saying American is really, it's, it really does limit a lot of people. What about people who don't have citizenship? What about just like the ways that that may feel to different communities because of the way that the nation has treated them? So we have to think about those things that we're talking about when we're talking about things and we're trying to describe issues and we're trying to advocate for them, that language is also 
so important. And we definitely value that tremendously from our partners and just making sure that we have the best kind of language, the best way that we can mobilize not only housers, but those in other sectors too, in the best way possible to make sure that we're describing the situations that people are dealing with so that we can get them the resources that they need. So I just thank you so much for that. And I thank you so much for your time today. We're coming down to the last few questions here. And um, I just want to know, here's his one question about just for advocates that are looking for more information, what are some resources that you can share with our audience so that they can find them? The article that we talked about a lot today, as I mentioned before, will be in the description box. But what are some other ways that folks can find resources? And what are some ways that they can advance the solutions that we've talked about today as well? Yes, of course. Please, please read the blog. <laughs> um, in it, there's a lot of links and good resources that kind of explain different parts of this issue a little bit more. So, you know, I encourage you to to read it and also click on the links. In addition to that, in 2016, which I know feels like forever ago, the Legal Action Center released a report entitled Helping Moms, Dads, and Kids to Come Home, Eliminating Barriers to Housing for People with Criminal Records. And that report was released, it was put out by one of my supervisors who I absolutely love, her name is Roberta Myers Douglas. And that report, although it's a little bit older and this conversation is making me feel like we should probably go and update it, sadly, it's still very relevant. And that report has helped lay the foundation for the housing work that I've been doing at the Legal Action Center. So I would encourage you, if you have a chance, to check it out. Also, if you want to learn more about supportive housing options, the Coalition for Supportive Housing has a lot of resources on their, on their website. And then also, of course, I would encourage folks to stay tuned in to the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, as well as the campaigns, the other campaigns that the National Low Income Housing Coalition convenes. I've found those those convenings and meetings to be extremely helpful in helping me to stay abreast of what's happening on the federal level and knowing uh, what advocacy asks we should have. Thank you so much for those resources. And for those that have tuned into the campaign forever, you know that we have a separate website. Um, you know, we're a part of NLIC, but we have a separate S um, website for the campaign called opportunityhome.org. So I'll shout that out for those that are new to the podcast and don't know about that website. And on there, we have a number of fact sheets. We have anything that ever comes out of the campaign, you'll find that on our website. So again, that's opportunityhome.org. Again, I will link the article at the bottom of this and you'll get directed straight to the website. So you can go explore the website there as well. And to the last question, I just want to know what is coming up next for the Legal Action Center? What are you most excited for in this moment? Yes, so I'm very excited about the work the Legal Action Center is currently doing to strengthen our our advocacy around affordable housing. We're trying to strengthen this advocacy both on the federal level as well as the advocacy that we do in New York State. I don't think I went into this too much, but in addition to being a national organization, we also do New York State-specific advocacy. And so that's really evolving, and so I'm excited about that. In addition, we're dedicated 
to continuing to work with our local partners, many of who I've uplifted so far. I'm intrigued to see what they do this year to increase access to housing for their clients and, and their communities. And I am excited about helping them and being involved in whatever way the Legal Action Center and the No Health Equals No Justice campaign can be. And then lastly, um, the Black Harm Reduction Network is working to become its own organization. Last year, we took a vote of our members and a strong majority said they want the Black Harm Reduction Network to be an independent organization. And so I'm excited about that. The Legal Action Center is supporting them in this effort and we're in the process of taking steps to make the network independent and I know that the network will continue to do great work um, that we can hopefully continue to share with you all in its new capacity as well. That's so exciting. <laughs> that is so exciting. Uh, well, yeah, no, I, I was just thinking like, oh, that's great. There might be ways for us to also collaborate, you know, as with this independent um, uh, coalition or organization or initiative um, moving forward if, if that were to, to be something that you guys actually you know go forth in doing so definitely keep us updated we would love to find ways to also make sure that you know we speak about housing and um, make sure that housing is uplifted in those spaces too as much as we can also learn about um, what's also being spoken of and elevated in that space um, so just keep us posted that's great to hear on our end and I hope that the audience is also able to just find the resources that they need, also stay connected with us um, and the work that you're doing to really lend those voices. We definitely need the advocacy and the voices are so important to this work. Um, your stories are so important to us um, and just the ways that we can learn about just any way that, that the issues that we spoke about, you know, connects to your lives and your stories is, is incredibly valuable to the work that we do and so we just we thank you all for listening we thank you all for being in this moment today and we just want to give uh we just want to give a special thank you to our guest victoria that joined us today thank you so much for all the information that you shared thank you so much for the resources that you've plugged us in thank you so much for collaborating with us and like you said at some point in this podcast about you guys being such a long-standing partner and us collaborating on this article just now it was perfect timing i think that we will definitely be working on other projects in the future and excited um, just to see where else this work can go as we continue to grow we continue to bring new partners in we continue to learn more about the partners that we have and ways that we can deepen our relationships with our partners and increase the mobilization um, of the voices that we have um, in this broad coalition that we're building so that we can influence the policies and the change that we really do want to see in this world. So we just thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you again. It was a pleasure. It was truly a pleasure. So that is a wrap. Thank you so much. This was the first podcast of the year. So thank oh, you for wow. tuning in. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you all in the next one. Bye, everyone.